I'm Victoria Papa. I'm an assistant professor of English at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. And I'm Levi Prombaum, the ACLS Leading Edge Fellow at MassMOCA. And welcome to CARA Podcast, the official podcast of CARA Syllabus, a justice-oriented public education and community resource of MassMOCA and MCLA. CARA Syllabus makes space for pressing dialogues about care, featuring conversations for and by activists, artists, academics, students, and our community members in and beyond the Berkshires. Good afternoon. My name is Kimberly Juanita Brown, and I am Associate Professor in the Department of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. Today I will be in conversation with DJ Lene Denise, artist, writer, and scholar of Black music and Black cultural production. We'll be discussing the CARE syllabus module, Black Elegies, in sight and sound, and in particular to musical productions that are reforming the way that I want to think about elegy. Carolina Chocolate Drops' song, um, Snowden Jig, or Genuine Negro Jig, and Khalil Joseph's video piece, Black Mary, featuring the singer Alice Smith. Thank you for agreeing to meet with me today. I've been wanting to talk to you for such a long time. Um, I want to know a little bit about how you got started because I don't think I have that story. And it must be fascinating. One line in my bio reads, you know, raised by my parents' record collection. Mm -hmm. you know? um, mm -hmm. and, and that's the truth of it, right? That my mother was listening to right. Mar Marvin Gaye and Aretha and Parliament and Funky. But my dad was listening to Coltrane and Miles Davis and Sarah mm. Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald. Mm. But my sister was listening to Tina Turner in the 80s, hip hop. And then she introduced me to Bob Marley. And oh, then, nice. you know, so, um, and because my sister is now 50, when we were listening to rap in the 80s, mm -hmm. she would do the work of chasing samples. Oh, wow. So we'd be listening to something and she'd be like, oh, that's, you know, James Brown, funky drummer, mama used to play him and da 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 da. And, and these DJs and these producers were sampling our parents' you mm -hmm. know, collection when we were listening and, and, and listening to it and raised by it. So there's all these like, nice. all these intersections that mm -hmm. are rooted in like sampling culture and then what it means to grow up in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> in 2013, I started to think about dj culture as a cultural practice worthy of scholarly review you know mm -hmm. like and thinking about how my critical consciousness my research skills had been encouraged by what it means to be you know um or to, to respect the 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 craft right. um which is to know about the sort of sometimes the social context of a certain album or an artist um mm -hmm and to be asking questions about these diasporic influences and intersections and, yeah. you know, um, and so I just started thinking about DJ scholarship as a, as a, as a real sort of uh, sonic liberation practice for black uh -huh. folks. Right. Yeah. There's been something so much about the pandemic and not being able to gather in particular ways right now that I think, I mean, it's, it's really heavily leaning upon a good DJ set or memories of a good DJ set and memories Absolutely. of that, that great party or the club that you went to. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's all intertwined. Yeah, and it's deep because just to kind of build on that, and Nana will talk about this grief, it's mm -hmm. interesting what where the DJ has been placed in that process, mm -hmm. the grieving process and the, the gatekeeping almost that DJs are doing mm -hmm. um, of yeah. the sort of, the, the, and the gatekeeping or rather the management of the sonic archives that we mm -hmm. are, are presenting at this time mm -hmm. of deep and heavy mourning, right? right. Like is that we're relying on the knowledge of DJs yeah. to, to move through the grief. Yeah, it's, yes, it's really important. I mean, I, I know that the, the adorable catchy song, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, um, <laughs> it's not a literal manifestation of, a, of saving a life, but it, it isn't not, you know, like having that sense. It is a catchy, I get it like sort of disco era song, but mm -hmm. I reference <laughs> it often and I love it because it is, yeah, um, I was sitting there bored to death, is yeah. this, right? Yes. And then this DJ plays, I said, I gotta get up, I gotta yep. get up, I gotta get down. Yeah. Right? Like moving people to action, um, mobilizing yeah. folks. And then just a number of love songs to DJs, period, right? Mm -hmm. um, Zane's um, oh, Hey yes. Mr. DJ. Aretha Franklin has a song called Hey Mr. DJ, which is oh, wow. So there are all these songs, these love songs that are dedicated to DJs. As it should be. Life-changing, <laughs> life-changing, life-sustaining. Um, and you have always sort of intertwined your scholarship with your uh, the practical application of your um, DJing. And how has that been for you? I mean, it's just been awesome because it's opened doors um, into cultural and educational institutions that um, hadn't really engaged DJs critically. Yeah. Um, before I was sort of, you know, introduced the concept of DJ scholarship through proposals. Um, oh, okay. Or, you know, just learning about my work um, right. and the work that I was doing with other institutions. Mm -hmm. And so that has been amazing because I've found, you know, home institutions where I can step into these AFM departments and mm -hmm. teach courses on on the history of, of Black DJ culture. So I have yeah. active relationships with um, Stanford and UCLA, mm -hmm. where I teach courses on the Black music 80s and focus on electronic music mm -hmm. and just Black music created in the Reagan era. Um, right. Diasporically, but right. with the focus on this kind of Black American world of music. Mm -hmm. And how is your your background? You're from California originally. I'm how from that California. Well, I mean, I think about um, DJ culture in Los Angeles is huge when mm. you consider maybe someone like the role of of Dr. Dre. Mm -hmm. um, and who he was prior to becoming a DJ for NWA, which was um, a sort of a, a deep listener is who he was, right? What right. He, was, he, he spent a huge part of his, you know, um, young adult life um, building this knowledge base of, mm -hmm. of music and his work with the world-class wrecking crew. So mm -hmm. I think being in LA is interesting because the West Coast, whether it knows it or not, or whether it wants to admit it or not, is so heavily influenced by the Midwest in particular, but also the Black South. Right. So so Zap and Roger and Parliament Funkadelic, G-Funk and all those things are about those interesting migration routes. 
right? right? Um, and who ended up on the West Coast. And so my listening mm-hmm. and my thinking through music has been largely shaped by mm-hmm. um, Midwest and Black Southern culture. Mm-hmm. That makes a whole lot of sense to me. So just, I wanted to frame the, uh, the thinking behind um, Black Elegies in Sight and Sound. Um, I was trying to figure out how artists were moving around the kind of like absence of the canonical elegy for Black, for Black subjectivity and what other resources they had, you know, in terms of genre in order to think through or contemplate uh, grief, collective grief of Black people. And when I, you know, started teaching my African-American lit survey regularly, I would play sorrow songs for the students so that they got a sense or an understanding of what enslaved people were trying to communicate through song and the the double meaning of the sorrow song and why it's so important, I feel like. It wasn't, it's not necessarily that these students were familiar with sorrow songs generally, but they have a sense of that trajectory, the historical trajectory through gospel music, spirituals, through the blues and through jazz. So I wanted a kind of origin point for them to orient them and to also to say, you know, you don't have to sort of belabor the point of how terrible slavery was, but look at the archive that's left and look at the mechanisms that had to be instituted in order to say, this hurts or I am in pain. So I started there by thinking, you know, trying to think deeply about sorrow songs since I work on representations of slavery. And then I started to think about the kind of absence of Black poetry from, um, you know, the elegy. So if you, you, you do a Google search for the elegy, you'll get a lot of poets and almost none of them will be Black. Mm-hmm. And that is that was so striking to me because I don't know any Black poets who don't write about Black grief. So how could they be you know, so absent of that? They should be at the center of the elegy, right? especially in the 20th century, but they are not. So then I thought about all of these other ways. I decided fairly early on that if I thought I heard it, I probably heard it. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I was in conversation with people who would know better about how this sounds or how it possibly sounds. So originally I, you know, I was kind of obsessed with, with Alice Smith's version of uh, I Put a Spell on You, which was on the soundtrack for the Nina Simone documentary, What Happened to Simone? Six and a half minutes long. And I listened to it for probably a hundred times before I thought to myself, well, you know, I knew the original version, I knew the Nina Simone version, and this was something different. And I was trying to figure out what that was. And I just decided it was a, it was a whale, like a release, like a, you know. And Smith herself has said that when she recorded, the original recording was a day after her grandmother's funeral. And that in her most recent concert, I think in October, she said whenever she sings that song, her grandmother enters the room. Um, and she usually ends her set with that with that song. So everything I was originally thinking was coming together. I didn't know, but there was something there that was so, it was outside of a possessive plea and it was within the boundaries of an expression of deep grief. That's what I thought I was hearing. And then to have um, Khalil Joseph 
make this film, you know, it seemed proper and right. And of course, um, the way to go, especially with somebody like, like Smith, who's doing so much with four octaves, um, musically and emotionally. Um, so that's where, that's really where it began. And I just wanted to have some way to think through these other modalities of mourning, mourning practices um, in plain sight and out of, out of plain sight. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm gonna try to just play a little bit of Black Mary. this video to my students uh, intro to Africana studies of course it's the first first day and unlike many of my other video um, analyses I usually turn the volume down so that they can like really read the scene the visuality but I don't do it with Black Mary because it can't be done with Black Mary like it doesn't work separately you know I just want to I mean, let's just let's just say Robert Glasper's name as the oh, author yes. of the song. Yes. Um, and I and I had a chance to interview Alice Smith last year before the pandemic really? to learn about this song in particular because it was one of my first questions to her. Yeah. Like, like, who are you? Because based on that performance, yes, I need to know who you are. Right. Because that performance of the song, let alone the visuals and the mm -hmm. storytelling or the mm -hmm. visual life that Khalil Joseph provides the song and actually, and, and, and does it in a way that honors yes. the kind of sonic, I feel like gravity of the film. I mean, yeah. of, the, of the song, like he- He got I, it. I don't know how, how because it is, when I, I, I don't like to say this publicly too many times, but I'm going to have to just to respect the truth of what this song does. And that is mm. that this song does something that Nina mm. did not do. And this, mm. is, this is the only, this is, mm -hmm. you know, when you think about who is bold enough to cover Nina Simone, right? you know, like, um, right. but then to cover it and change the texture mm -hmm. to the degree that Alice Smith does requires us to just sort of pause. Mm. Um, so Robert Glasper is from Texas. Alice Smith is from Georgia. Mm -hmm. Joseph is from California. Mm -hmm. Ina Simone is from North Carolina, right? So yes. all of these black geographies and conversation, I can't, I can't remember where Screaming Jay Hopkins is from. 
Um, I want to say Ohio, but I don't know where I got that. That just would into be my amazing, head. to be honest. <laughs> if he, that that would really um, be an incredibly complete story, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah. Um, and so, and I and I think New York would make it complete when we think about Alice Smith's original performance of it in New mm -hmm. York, her live performance of that song, right? And, and part of it, and part of why Khalil Joseph, I feel like. Um, was able to kind of, you know, hold the weight of it um, is because the mm -hmm. song is so much about her, her bodily response to it. Yes. It's a, and it's interesting yeah. because it almost has a punk kind mm -hmm. of um, aggression, but it's subtle. Yeah. And it's, and she throws herself at the mic and she yes. returns and she stands back and she looks at the mic and she steps up on the mic. Like, what do you yes. have? To, I mean, and so it's a, it's just a, it's, it's, it's just, just wow. serious. Yeah. But if you want to know, which is what Khalil Joseph captures here, where that song is coming from, look at her neck. Mm -hmm. Well, she's the song mm. is in her neck. Yo, <laughs> <laughs> the song it's it's agreed. Hadn't thought about that, but it's yeah. in her neck. Yeah, you can literally follow the lines as she. Yeah, and it's a map, and it's a map, and if you want to. It's a, it's a, it's a map, like you mm -hmm. said, like we're, you know, thinking about how the way that he plays with sound is about like not necessarily having a destination, but actually, in fact, mm. the destination is right blackness. Yeah. Well, that there's a map in her neck mm. that is letting you know, mm. you know, where the grief lives for so many of us, mm -hmm. and, and and how it lives between the the neck and the mouth. You know, I've been, I've, I've, I've been trying to make my way around black absurdity mm. um which i feel yeah. like this song and this and this and this video this five minutes sort of speaks to because right. i'm thinking about what it means to live between black excellence and, and imminent black death mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and yeah. And or the absurdity of black quiet, of, of black right. quietness, right? Um, right. Thinking about Kevin Koshy's, you know, the sovereignty mm -hmm. of quiet, but like the absurdity of of, right. of a dizzying kind of quiet when there's a hyper visibility, mm. hyper performance, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and 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 blackness largely framed by this outward performance of right. itself. And right. here, it's just there's a quietness here that you're forced to contend with. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, it really does feel like an enclosure, um, even with all of the images that are outdoors and this range of people who are being filmed. It still feels like a black enclosure, almost like a black secret. Mm, um, absolutely, a black secret. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I think I appreciate about it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just really poised, like if you put a poem into liquid form, what that would look like. That would be Black Mary. It is absolutely poised. <laughs> it is a poem. And you know, we could be here all day with, <laughs> we could be here all day with this one five and a half minute film. But I also oh, want to yeah. talk about um, the Carolina Chocolate Drops just because yes. I went to their concert with a friend of mine mm. mm -hmm. in maybe 2010 maybe in Boston. Mm -hmm. And what I remember about this song, um, Snowden's Jig, was that when it was played, everybody just, everybody was still. Like 
they weren't comfortable dancing really. It was like a sacred text. Um, and then, and then we, you know, we bought the album and the album came, the vinyl album came with a, a, a CD inserted magic. I love um, <laughs> that. I love that. So, so we got both. And, and, you know, we were playing the, the album in the, in the car on the way home and just, I could not get this song out of my head. I did not know what it was. I did not know why I was immediately obsessed with it. I did not know why I didn't move um, while it was being performed. I didn't know what it was. I love those moments where I don't know where a thing is, what a thing is. And I have to spend some time with it. So, you know, if I've seen the Alice Smith, Khalil Joseph film, 800 times, then I've listened to this song probably a thousand times mm -hmm. in that time period for a year. Mm -hmm. It was my ringtone. Mm. Mm. It's a very, um, well, it wasn't a great ringtone because I would just listen to it instead of picking up the phone. But I did <laughs> I need, <laughs> I did need that daily reiteration of what I thought that I was hearing. And what I thought that I was hearing was definitely not a jig um something else and it definitely had a mournful quality especially since i've seen um productions on youtube of the original genuine negro jig song that was um, copyrighted by dan emmett and that one is a little bit more up up tempo and it replaces the fiddle for a banjo mm -hmm. and this one does not so there's something about this song that i thought was like deeply embedded mournful sadness that was also i mean it, that was the real confusion for me it's like a little upbeat but not quite enough mm -hmm. you know to feel like you can actually do something in the direction of of, of a dance or moving you know mm -hmm. moving in this in this arena actually know but I feel like you know there was a sense that they understood fully what Emmett was doing you know um and you know I, I don't know I think about it as if they knew what he was doing but they knew he would he wouldn't understand fully understand the music that they were playing because he didn't have mm 
probably an improvisational bone in his body. I don't know. Um, and that knowing that, that they didn't feel that there was any like true threat, um, even though clearly if they said, if they're saying on their, on their tombstones that they taught Dixie to Dan Emmett, then there's some part of this that they understood happening in real time. And I, I don't know, you know how they felt about it. I don't know what they tried to do about that, but the song feels like an answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the fact that he called it a genuine Negro jig also speaks to, you know, what it is that people hear or don't hear when Black music or Black art, Black cultural productions are, are in the center of the frame, mm -hmm. what they don't get. Right? Because I was immediately, you know, struck by just the, the word jig, which mm -hmm. technically, but really, um, it's something else. So, you know, that wouldn't be the word that I would use to describe it, even though. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about Black church grieving poetics. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And the sitting with it, I think, is necessary because I have never been able to, I, I can't move quickly through this song. I can't, I mean, it just, it could play in a loop, but it can't just stop at one, one listen nope. for me. No. So there's definitely something there that says you will attend to this. And that's what I think I'm hearing in some of these musical productions where I can't necessarily place why um, I feel like I need to just sit still for a minute. And I think because I work with a lot of, with visual culture, the sense that I have is that people do not expect and nor are they asked to sit with black subjectivity. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, it's always a kind of surprise for the viewer, the request. I've been using the example of um, Michaela Coel's um, I May Destroy You, Oof. where you're spending multiple episodes looking at a dark-skinned black woman while she's going through her process of, of unpacking and grieving and mourning and joyfully communing with her friends. All of that, she is your focal point. You don't you don't get to look away. And that's something that nobody's been asking viewers to do, right? For a really long time, it necessitates a kind of black enclosure, protective enclosure, a creative enclosure. But at this point to say that the expectation for the outer world, the external world is that they don't have to look or listen to you. And that's like sitting in the middle of, of Morrison's beloved. Like love your mouth, even though you know what you say from it, they will not hear, right? Yes, Still. absolutely, absolutely. And that's what this sound, this song sounds like to me. You will not look away. You cannot look away. Right. Like, and here. I love that I may destroy you reference because the other thing you can't do, which you have been conditioned to do with her in particular, mm. is laugh. No. Right. She's coming. No. I, I can't remember the first um television series she did but it was a comedy essentially oh yes um, uh chewing gosh. gum yes exactly thank chewing you gum. chewing gum right a comedy mm -hmm. not this and no. not only are you going to look at her you're going to look at her lips mm -hmm. which are red with beautiful lipstick mm -hmm. and you're also going to look at her face with yes. you know that that will not and, and hair will not protect you from looking and her mm -hmm. right she is a no. bald-headed black woman with beautiful thick lips 
and 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 red lipstick too mm -hmm. which is it's just bold and it's yeah so yeah. You, you will not look away and you're going to sit with this reflection it's, it's really i'm thinking about talk about poets i'm thinking about elizabeth alexander's um mm. black interior yes you know um yes. and the yeah interior world be black of, and look of at black this. women Can yeah you, right yeah because i think that that's the important question because we know other people can look. Can you be black mm -hmm. and look at this? Mm -hmm. and when I give presentations, mm -hmm. I always have to say, black people never say to me, what about the evidence, right? We're talking about images of dead black people. And mm -hmm. black people never say mm -hmm. to me, what about the evidentiary? Don't we need these images to know what happened? No black person has ever said that to me, but a bunch of other people have said that to me. Mm -hmm. And then my response is, what's the evidence that white people die? Where's that? Mm -mm -mm. Crickets. Mm -hmm. So there's something there. If you can deeply look, mm -hmm. if a person is dead and black, but you can't deeply look when they're going about their quotidian lives, then we already have a problem. Mm -hmm. So separating this out sometimes, separating the visual from the, um, from the sonic does help, helps me to figure out how black people are attempting to mm -hmm. provide space for each other to mm -hmm. to provide space for creativity i feel like mm -hmm. like like a dj set um figures similarly where you know you're playing the song people are singing because they're all from everybody knows all of the music that's never a problem you're gonna have a bunch of people but guess what it's a bunch of very specific people who will have that relationship to that music, especially when it's not music that would be played. It's not a Beyonce who would be played, you know, consistently on the radio, mm -hmm. but something that you would know just because your parents played it for you or you're familiar with it in, in another way. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is necessary. Absolutely. I love that reference of the, because it's, a, again, thinking about the DJ as conductor and the trust that the community has to have in the DJ to play those songs that resonate, to play those, not only to play those songs, but to take out the music so that the dance floor can right. sing along at the exact moment that we love so much. It could be <laughs> it could be the chorus, yeah, but it could also be something like Michael Jackson saying, hee hee, and we wanna all <laughs> say that together. And so the DJ mm -hmm. turns the music down so that the dance floor can say, hee hee. Mm -hmm. That is, that's, that kind of knowing, but then with this song, I'm thinking about the the slave codes and how they were mm -hmm. specific to each state. And I'm thinking about the Carolinas and again, Nina Simone, but yeah. in particular, the removal of drums, the removal of instruments, but then the yes. introduction of those things post-emancipation, mm -hmm. but still using the body yes. when we were you know, um, punished for trying to use instruments, using the yes. body still, which is why the beating on the table comes up. Right. But then, and this is the last thing I'll say about this because it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to think about the afterlife of the word jig. Yes. Right, because jigging in Detroit mm. is a form of dance mm -hmm. that is the kind of companion dance to techno. Okay. Which rather we want to really believe it or not techno is born out of grieving in detroit in the 80s mm. it's about surviving the crack epidemic it's about yes. withstanding reagan's policies techno is born out of right a form of grief right and then you're jigging yes you know, um while you're grieving 
Yeah. And it, hello. And so it's a interesting kind of thing where not only are we jigging when you think about electronic music and, but the ring shout returns mm -hmm. with this jigging and people are placed in the middle of the circle to jig. Yes. Right. Yes. To, so this, this just like, you know, yes. legacies or genealogies of jigging and black grief. Mm -hmm. All interlaced. Mm -hmm. That is how we survive. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to me. I mean, I don't know what I couldn't imagine what black people would do without music, but I don't know how our survival would be structured without, where would it go? You know, where would the joy and the grief go? Right? Okay. Only so many places. Thank you for listening to Care of Podcast, a production of Care Syllabus, a new partnership between Mass Mocha and the Mind's Eye at MCLA. This podcast was produced by Jonah Bayer with music by Ketza. To learn more about how artists, academics, activists, and members from our community are reimagining a more just and equitable world by centering care in their everyday lives, please visit caresyllabus.org and follow at caresyllabus on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>